For the week of Wednesday, January 16th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Coxalo. This week, it is all about lobbying at the state level with the author of the Indivisible States Guide, Jiggy Othi Lingham. Jiggy is the state and local policy manager for Indivisible, and she joins us to break down how to get everything we can out of this year's legislative session. And she also has a good rule of thumb for lobbying tactics. I do think that the more effort a tactic takes, the more effective it is, right? So if you are going to have a big lobby day like you're planning in Olympia, that's a really great tactic to show that constituents are committed enough to show up at the Capitol in person to tell legislators what they want. We also have a preview of the 2019 Seattle Women's March with the co-lead of the Programming Committee, Liberty Harrington. And of course, we will have our weekly calls to action with Indivisible Washington's 8th Research Team Leader, Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. In the midterm election, in addition to taking back the House, Democrats made solid gains in state capitals across the country. Previous to the election, Dems held eight state trifectas, which means they control the governorship and both chambers of the legislature. In 2019, they now control 14, including, of course, Washington, where both chambers saw expanded Democratic majorities. The question that many progressives here have been wondering is what we can do with that expanded majority. And so joining us to talk about this is the primary author of the Indivisible States guide, Jiggy Athilingham. Jiggy is the state and local policy manager for Indivisible, and she is here to give us an overview of how we can best use our power here at the state level. Jiggy Athilingham, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, we've been very used to aiming our actions uh, in Indivisible at the federal level, right, with our members of Congress and our senators. But in the guide, you point out that advocating for progressive issues at the state level has some built-in advantages for activists, right? So what are they? Yeah, so the honest truth is that when we're advocating for progressive issues, we're not really going to actually be able to turn any of those progressive bills in Congress into law Uh, without the Senate or control of the White House. There is just no realistic path forward to passing progressive laws. However, we have an enormous opportunity at the state level to actually turn some of those progressive ideas into real laws. And this is super important because the bills that we pass on the state level kind of serve as a as a testing ground um, Mm. for national laws. Like federal laws come from them being tested at the state level first. So the more states that pass any given policy, it kind of builds the case and builds evidence for those policies um, effectiveness so that eventually they get to be adopted at the federal level. And in a Democratic trifecta state like Washington, we have the opportunity then to be a real uh, incubator for some of these bold progressive pieces of legislation to not only see if it'll work at the federal level, but also in other states, right? Absolutely. And that's really important to note, which is that state laws spread, uh, both good ones and bad ones. You know, some of the really terrible, oppressive um, laws that start in Texas then spread to all of these other red states. But we can do the same thing for progressive ideas. Um, and Washington being this a new, relatively new trifecta is a great um, model for other states. Yeah. And, you know, uh, states can operate more quickly than the federal government often can. And actually, in this instance right now, we're likely to see a lot of gridlock at the national level for the next two years, particularly if the shutdown right now is any indication, right? Yeah, exactly. And we can do a lot of things, um, especially while there's nothing that's going to be moving. Um, We can do things to kind of restore some of the terrible things that have happened in the past two years. Um, So one example that Washington did last year, as well as several other states, was when the FCC repealed net neutrality. Washington state, as well as I think a handful of other states, also went ahead and said, "Okay, well, we're going to put net neutrality back in force in our state. So we have the opportunity to kind of resist and undo some damage while also really going on the offense, which we can't fully go on the offense to make real laws at the federal level, um, we can be that uh, progressive testing ground. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's really exciting, uh, I think, for a lot of people here in Washington. This is something that uh, is going to get a lot of airtime on the show here, right up to the time that we do the lobbying day in February and then beyond. So that's certainly something we're going to be talking about here. So let's talk about some of the steps that the guide lays out. So um, in advance of doing this kind of work at the state level, uh, one of the things that the guide talks about is the importance of building partnerships, uh, first with other indivisible groups in your state, and that's pretty self-explanatory. 
territory. And uh, I do know that there is currently work being done on that here in the state. And we'll talk about that more also in the coming weeks. But you also say that it is important to build relationships with other groups and entities that are doing advocacy around whatever issue your indivisible group chooses to lobby for. So talk about the importance of that. Yeah, I can't emphasize this enough, to be honest. This is probably the number one most important thing um, to being effective advocates, which is just recognizing that Indivisible is new. We've been around for two years. There are certainly members within Indivisible who have been um, being activists for long before that, but as as a in general, Indivisible is relatively new. And there are so many uh, issue expert organizations that have been fighting for justice within your local community, within your state, within our country for decades and decades and decades. And they have so much institutional knowledge on the history of the issue and also the inner workings of the legislature. And there's just so much knowledge that um, we have to be, we have to understand that um, we should be deferring to experts and especially um, those who represent impacted communities. We should always defer to the leadership of those that are the most impacted. And so that means building really intentional partnerships um, and learning from from other folks who have been in this fight long before us. And it's also, you know, about, you know, you can think of it in terms of efficiency as well. There's no, what Indivisible has to offer is a wealth of people power. We have people all over the state that we can turn out and show up for issues. Um, That issue expertise may not necessarily be our strength and that's okay. Um, we can work together and we can, everyone can leverage our collective strengths to really um, build really effective uh, state legislative campaigns. Yeah. So this is really just about building power in the most effective way possible. And that's, absolutely. yeah. And that's really what your guide uh, drills down on and I think lays out really effectively. So um, let's talk about choosing an issue. Um, this is something that a lot of groups are considering right now in the state. And uh, your guide says to prioritize one, two, three bills to focus on. What are some of the criteria that we should consider here when making that choice? Yeah. Well, first, I want to just reemphasize the idea of prioritization in general as a as a strategic choice. Um, it's difficult because your legislature may have hundreds, even thousands of bills that they're working on, and you may see 60 that you find to be interesting. But really, in order to be really, really strategic and impactful, it's really absolutely critical to prioritize. If you have members kind of pulled in 60 different directions trying to take actions. Um, Not only are they going to get burned out trying to work on multiple things at a time, but you're also going to dilute the collective power of, you know, Indivisible Washington showing up and all leveraging the collective power across the state to work on just a few bills. So really want to emphasize that a handful of bills to really go in on is um, both strategic and impactful. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier about the importance of creating partnerships with indivisible uh, groups across the state so you can kind of all get on the same page, right? Yeah. And it's it's about building, it's really about building power and leveraging it strategically is, is really the reason why I emphasize um, building partnerships across the state. Because you may have um, let's say one indivisible group in one corner of the state wants to work on a, one bill, and then they find out that the person that represents them actually is voting the right way. Right. Then there's not really that much to do. But if you're working across um, the entire state as a coalition, you can find out, okay, here are the five people whose votes we need to flip in order to actually move this bill forward. And then the indivisible groups in those target districts, with the support of their neighboring indivisibles, can actually go and lobby their own members. So we're being, it's really the best way to be as strategic as possible in doing this work. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so, you know, something that I actually wanted to ask you, and this seems very rudimentary, but uh, I'd love to get your clarification on it. I think there's a tendency to want to choose an issue first and then go and see if there is a bill that represents that issue. Is that the right way to be thinking about this? Or should we be looking at a list of available bills that are coming up and be like, okay, this is sort of in the area that we are looking to advocate for? What what do you recommend? I think it's good to get a sense of what issues people are interested in, because you can sort of narrow down your search. It is hard to to go through the hundreds and hundreds of bills. So 
let's say that your groups prioritize democracy and the environment, um, it's easy then to be like, okay, who are the issue expert groups in my state who focus on democracy and the environment? So you can then be like, okay, is there a common cause in my state? I should reach out to them. They probably have expertise on what's moving. Um, so it does help, I think, to, to filter by issue area first, just in terms of partner outreach and um, gathering information. That makes sense. And then you can kind of go onto the page where the bills are and just sort of do like a, a control find or a command find and just sort of see what uh, correlates with the issues that you're looking for. Well, so then uh, you in the guide advocate for making your goals around the advocacy SMART, which stand for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Realistic, and Time-Bound. Now, I just kind of blasted through those, but uh, I will have a link to the guide on the site for people to check out. Um, But one of the things that you address in the guide is the difference between what you call a big-picture goal and a campaign goal. Can you just briefly talk about the difference between those two things? Yeah, I think it's really important to always think about your big picture goal, especially as you're trying to build consensus across the state, which we know can be challenging because you there's probably many, many groups across the state and everybody has different ideas about what the what to work on. But if you can orient yourselves towards your big picture goal, it's easier then to narrow down what you actually want to work on collectively together. So an example would be, you know, let's say the big picture goal is expanding access to healthcare for everyone in Washington. Like that's, you know, let's say that's a really big picture and that maybe is not going to happen this legislative cycle, right? That is something that you are working towards as sort of your North star, as the thing that you would like to see as your reality someday. Um, And that's what's the big picture goal. And it's easy to build consensus around the big picture of like, what are we collectively trying to achieve together? And then the campaign goal is sort of what, what are we trying to do this year, this session, what is the thing that we can do that will get us towards that goal? So maybe there is a bill. I think your governor Inslee was talking about a public option bill. Um, and that sure is something that's coming up. Yes. There's other healthcare bills that are coming up in Washington, I'm sure. But thinking through, okay, if our goal is to get towards universal healthcare someday, then is this public option bill a strategic way that will get us to that goal? And that will be our campaign goal for this year is that we want to move this thing, you know, X way, through the legislative process or we want to get it signed. Um, It's also important to tailor the goals based on what is real, like you said, realistic and time bound. So if you say, this is what we're trying to do this year is what can you actually accomplish this year that is both ambitious, but realistic. There are certain issues in certain states. And in general, when we do state advocacy, a lot of issues are not going to get passed in one legislative session. A lot of times the goal is okay, this year we're going to get it out of committee and we're going to build a public narrative for this bill. And next year we're going to come back and we're going to get it off the floor. And, you know, these campaigns are not necessarily um, going to be just one legislative session long, but you can think about your campaign goal for the year. Is like, what is our goal for this year and how does it fit into the big picture goal? Yeah, I mean, I think with progressive ideals, generally we have to be playing the long game Right. And I, and I think it's it's interesting because a lot of us were looking at the 2018 midterms as being kind of the finish line. And when you get down no. into the state level, no, there's a lot to be done and there's a lot that can be done. And certainly now that we're looking forward to 2020, um, that really uh, extends things uh, quite a bit. And, you know, in, in terms of framing it, uh, you know, around state issues, as we started out our conversation by saying, there's a lot of of work that we can do that will have a ripple effect here at the state level. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about research. So we have chosen to, let's say, advocate for, uh, you mentioned uh, single-payer health care, which is definitely something that is on the table and has the possibility of passing in some form in Washington this year. So then we need to do research. So what are some key pieces of information that we will need to know previous to going into lobby our legislators? Yes. Um, there's some research. You should definitely come equipped and ready um, so that you seem knowledgeable about the issue when you're going to lobby. Um, a few things to think of is, one, who's authoring this bill? Um, and what are, what, are, what are they like? So the person who's the author of the bill, what is their district? What, are the, what is their history on the issue? Are they going to be, um, do they have a history of really compromising and taking amendments that are watered down bills really easily? Do they have a history of being really strong progressive advocates? Knowing a little bit about who the author is will actually tell you a lot about what may happen to the bill. 
knowing the history of the issue is absolutely important. Has this come up before? Um, if it has, why didn't it pass? What were the obstacles there? Who are the main people that oppose that bill? Um, who are the people who are working on the bill? And where is the bill going to go? Um, so let's say it's a healthcare bill. There's probably, you know, a health committee that it's probably going to go towards. Who's on that committee? Who's the chair of that committee? Um, the members of that committee, what are they like? Are they progressive? Are they moderates? Are they Republicans? Um, gathering all of that information. And one of the best ways to gather that information is, again, I can't hammer this point homo enough, which is um, talk to those partner organizations who right. have been working on healthcare for decades in Washington um, and, and really learn, learn from their expertise and, and figure out how you can best plug into the campaign that's already moving um, and how you can leverage the strength of the Washington-wide indivisible to really further the efforts um, of those partners. Right. Well, so a lot of what you're saying here gets into, uh, leads naturally into strategy uh, and something that you talk in the guide uh, about called power mapping. So um, this is actually a little tricky without a visual, but you're going to want to make a chart where uh, along the x-axis you rank people or entities by their level of support for your issue from active support all the way over to active opposition. I think there are five different gradations in between. And then on the y-axis, you rank how much power they have. So this is designed to help you kind of home in on a strategy. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, power mapping is a is an organizing tool that have been used for advocates for a long time to basically map out what is the the most effective and strategic path to get to your campaign goal. Um, and so the best way to do that is to understand who has power over the decisions that you need to be made to get to your campaign goal. So if the if the example is that we're trying to pass this healthcare bill, then you should figure out, like I said, who um, who holds the power. So it's going to be committee chairs. It's going to be members of the committee. It's going to be the leadership of the houses. It's going to be the governor. Um, it might also be influencers of those people. And so thinking through and going through and also who are who's on your side, who's going to be opposing and really getting a lay of the land of, of who are the players and how much power do they have will allow you to target, okay, here are the people that have the most power and these are the people that I really need to pressure. And then if there are some people who are sort of in the middle who maybe don't really oppose, is there a way that you could reach out to those folks and get them over and move them over to the support column from the neutral column? Right. So, I mean, this is really just about, because everybody has limited time in the activist world. So this is really about getting the biggest bang for your buck, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, so then something else that I think has been kind of a challenge for people at the state level, um, and I can I can speak to this from experience because I track a lot of things that happen at the state level, and it is challenging to uh, sort of follow along with the legislative timeline of these bills, like when the bill is introduced, when it's going to be heard, when it's going to be voted on. This information is not that easy to come by, uh, particularly when using our state legislature's uh, website. Um, it's not great that way. So uh, you talk about some other ways to do this. Can you just lay out what some of those are for us? Yeah, there are, there's lots of, you know, fancy expensive tools to track legislative software or to track legislative bills, but there's also a couple of free options that um, folks have used that have been helpful. So one is something called Legiscan. Um, it allows you to actually subscribe to certain bills um, and it will send you an email anytime those bills, like anything happens to them, so you can know that it moved. Um, another one that's kind of similar is Fast Democracy. They just have very, they're kind of similar, but they have different um, interfaces, so you could check both of those out. Another one that um, is underrated is actually Twitter. I mm. follow a lot and learn a lot by following state reporters on Twitter. Oh, so interesting. State, okay, I hadn't paper, thought about that. That's, that's very cool. Yeah, if you can, like if you go through your state's paper and you kind of look at you look at articles that have been written about the state legislature and you figure out who those authors are and you find them on Twitter, they're probably going to be tweeting about happenings in the state legislature. And so it's really, um, really productive to make, you know, like a Twitter list of here are all of the Washington state reporters that report on state uh, legislation and checking that Twitter list. Um, a lot of times reporters will live tweet hearings or um, will give updates on bills. Um, one norm that I've seen on Twitter a lot is people will use bill numbers as a hashtag. And so you can also, let's say there's a bill you're following, you can 
say, you know, SB120, hashtag SB120, you can look and see. Um, sometimes that brings up bills from other states sure. too, but it's one one way of using social media. A lot of times social media is more up to date than the website or any of these other tools because there are reporters there in real time reporting on it. Um, and so for like really rapid um, happenings, Twitter is really, really useful. Absolutely. Yeah. And another thing that I can recommend and something that I use is just straight up Google alerts. If there's something that you're trying to track. And like you say, a lot of times it'll bring up bills in other states, but um, not always. So that can be useful, too. So um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the nitty gritty here about how to lobby uh, a state legislator. So once you have all these pieces in place. um, So as I mentioned, we're all familiar with how to advocate at the federal level. So that means phone calls, town halls, office visits, things like that. And you're going to want to do those things with your state legislator too. Um, But in addition, you're going to want to lobby them. And so uh, we're actually organizing a lobbying day that I mentioned at the top of the show is going to be happening in Olympia on February 15th. And again, more on that in the coming weeks. But um, briefly talk about how to most effectively lobby your state legislator. It's a big question, but just give us uh, some bullet points. Yeah. The one thing that I will say, and it's one of the founding principles of Indivisible that I will continue to repeat again and again, is always talk to your own legislator. Always. Um, They are going to be most responsive to you because you're a constituent and you vote for them. And I I often find that in state politics, um, folks are like somehow think that doesn't apply anymore, but it does. Mm. Um, In some states, members may say that they listen to constituents out of district but you are still going to have more impact if they are your own legislators. That is the number one rule. Good reminder. Um, Beyond uh, beyond just talking to your state legislator, there are different tactics that you can use. And I do think that the more effort a tactic takes, the more effective it is, right? So if you are going to have a big lobby day with 50 people like you're planning in Olympia, that's a really great tactic to show the constituents you know, are committed enough to show up at the Capitol in person to tell legislators what they want. Um, Other office visits that are not necessarily coordinated at a lobby day are also really um, effective showing up at town halls. And then I think calls, especially right before a vote, let's say there's a vote tomorrow, getting like hundreds of calls into an office is really effective. The key to all of these tactics, though, is to have very clear and concrete asks. So, asks that you can hold your members accountable to. So if you're going to a lobby visit and you say, I really care about healthcare and I want representative X to fight for healthcare, there is no accountability with that ask. It is just, you know, they could come back to you a month later and say, yeah. That's really generalized, right? Yeah. You want something that's very specific, like I need you to vote for this bill, right? Right. Like I want you to vote for this bill in the health committee next week. Um, That is something that you can then come back and say, hey, I told you to do a thing and you didn't do it and now I'm upset. Or I told you to do a thing, thank you for doing that thing. Um, You're setting up a method for accountability if you really make your ask really concrete. Okay, that makes sense. Well, you know, uh, another thing that you talk about in the guide is committee hearings, and that's a big part of the bill's trajectory. That's something that, you know, you kind of detailed a little bit earlier. And you talk about impacting the committee process, and that's done with things like letters of support and giving public testimony. And given what you just said about always making sure to lobby your own legislator. I'm curious why members of a committee who aren't from your district would be responsive to you. So if you are just doing calls or an office visit to a committee member, that is not as effective as something like public testimony because that that is a public forum for input from the public that is set up as a, a venue for the public regardless of where you're from Um, to weigh in on the legislative happenings. Okay. And so basically, since this is read into the public record, uh, it it has more impact and they are uh, going to be more responsive accordingly. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And when it comes to letters of support, um, in some states, they do, you know, take letters from individual constituents. But in general, having a coordinated letter from a from an advocacy group um, shows that, you know, all of these people feel a certain way. Um, And you're, it's again, sort of that public record as opposed to like a private lobby visit or a private um, 
call that you're making. So it's sort of you you can weigh in in a public manner to a committee via a letter of support or a public testimony versus like calling and office visits are private events that um, they're not as responsive outside of district. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And in fact, one of the ways to make something, make sure something like this becomes part of uh, the public, not only record, but discussion is local media. And you touched on, uh, you know, local reporters. Um, Statehouse reporters' jobs are not easy. I've known some of them. They're terribly paid. They keep really poor hours. Uh, it's not a great gig, but they really do serve a very important function in all of this. And you talk about ways to kind of make outreach to them easier and ultimately to make their jobs easier. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think the the first is just record everything. Um, if it, if there aren't pictures, it didn't happen. So right. if you're visiting legislators, you know, take photos. Really, like document all of the things that you're doing. Have um, have that record. And then when you are pitching something that you want media coverage, you want to make it as easy as possible them for them to report on your story. So that means giving them those photos, those videos, giving them quotes already that they can include in their story or statements, um, other people that they should call, and basically even just a framing of how they might even think about the story and who they could interview and how it affects constituents. You're basically giving them the idea for the story already prepackaged and um, pitching that to them. So they don't have to do a lot of work. You've basically given them everything they need to write the story. And because they are so, you know, they're not as well paid, they have long hours, as the easier you make it, the more likely they are to bite. Well, this is just a ton of extraordinary information. And as I said, I will have a link to the guide posted at indivisiblepodcast.org. But Jiggy, before I let you go, I just have to let people know you're a neuroscientist by training. <laughs> um, so what made you get involved with Indivisible and specifically with, with doing this kind of work at the state level? That's a great question. I get it a lot. I'm sure you um, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still I thought that um, – it was time for some evidence-based decision-making to come into politics. That's something that we don't have enough of in the era of um, fake news. Here, so here. I, yeah. I was ready. I was ready to, to bring a little bit of my scientific perspective into policy and specifically with state work. I live in California. And so I'm similar to Washington in that, you know, after the Trump election, wanting to push back on Trump and realizing that by living in a blue state, actually the best way to push back is to actually have my state push back. Um, and doing that state-level work, I uh, really found that to be the most effective. Well, neuroscience's loss is certainly our gain. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jiggy Athelingham is the author of The Indivisible States Guide. And as I said, I have a link for all of you to check that out at indivisiblepodcast.org. Jiggy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And Jiggy has asked that all Indivisible groups who are doing state advocacy to register your events on the Indivisible website. So please do that because National Indivisible really wants to be able to track activity around the country. There is a link for you to do just that in the show notes at IndivisiblePodcast.org. And before we move on, I will mention that for anybody in driving distance of Issaquah, members of Indivisible Washington's 8th are going to be hosting an in-depth seminar about lobbying in Olympia called Democracy 101. This it's going to be happening on Sunday, January 20th at 10 a.m. That's going to be at the King County Library Service Center in Issaquah. And they're going to be going over the Indivisible States Guide in depth. And then they're going to host a panel with three really great guests. First, our friend Marcy Maxwell will be there. And because she is a former state representative, she has a ton of insider knowledge on how things work. Also on the panel will be two lobbyists, Wendy Rader Konolfalski of the Washington Education Association and Kathy Sakahara with the League of Women Voters. There will be a Q&A session directly afterwards, so bring all your questions about the process. Again, that's going to be on Sunday, January 20th at 10 a.m. at the King County Library Service Center in Issaquah, which is at 960 Newport Way Northwest in Issaquah.
The third annual Women's March will be happening nationwide this Saturday, and in Seattle, the event will be led by Seattle Women Marching Forward. That's women with an X in the place of an E. And the event is called Women's March on Seattle 2019 Building Power. This will be day one of three days of events scheduled. Sunday the 20th will be a day of action with events throughout the city. And then on Monday the 21st, which is Martin Luther King Day, there is going to be a series of celebrations in conjunction with the Martin Luther King Organizing Coalition. Liberty Harrington is the co-lead of the Programming Committee for Seattle Women Marching Forward, and she joins us now. Hi, Liberty. Hi. How's it going? Great. So, uh, you know, before we talk about the events, uh, the full name of the weekend is Seattle Women Marching Forward Building Power. So talk briefly about what building power means. Sure, yeah. The, the, the weekend is actually called Women's March 2019 Bil- Building Power. Oh, got it. Okay. Um, so I'll just talk a little bit about how we came to the um, how we came to that theme. Yeah, we gathered back in uh, August. We gathered a group of frontline organizers that we've been working with for the past almost three years now, since the first Women's March, and um, and we uh, we asked them to collaborate with us on our program this year, and um, and we had about twenty twenty five people pretty much consistently do that with us and meet with us regularly. And when we were talking about what the theme should be, um, what kept coming up was like that we need to be in solidarity with each other and that we need to really um, start to take to heart the the issues that all of our communities are facing, not just um, our own specific communities that that we need to um, we need to work together for, you know, um, shared liberation, because, you know, as uh, uh, as many people have said, you know, our liberation is tied. So if there's one group that is is facing um, is facing extreme injustice, it affects all of us, and it affects our ability to feel and to see and to be human. So right. we're really trying to focus everyone on building power together and building solidarity and looking beyond the bounds of their own needs and circumstances to, to work together. Well, so, the, I mean, the event really is manifestly about inclusivity. I mean, the X in women uh, speaks to that directly, right? Yeah. So back in 2016, when the group coalesced to organize the, the first march in 2017, which was held on um, January 21st, 2017, the day after the inauguration of um, President Trump, we um, we all came together and pretty early on, probably in one of our first meetings, I want to say like maybe even in like at the end of November or mid-November. So directly after the uh, the election, when we coalesced, there were there was a, a very diverse group of, of people who came together to do that. And one of those folks was a gender nonconforming person who took on um, helping to uh, to write the the mission statement for the march because it's great to march it's great to do all these things but if you don't have clear demands it doesn't mean a whole lot sure. so we had a very strong mission from the beginning and this person was a gender nonconforming person who said we have to explicitly include trans and gender nonconforming people and non-binary people and the way that we do that is with the X in women. And, you know, speaking uh, as someone who's been to both events in 2017 and 2018, there, there really is a very inclusive and welcoming feel to the proceedings. Like I said, this is a three-day event, so we'll start with Saturday. Uh, the rally starts at 9 a.m. at Cal Anderson Park in Seattle, and you've got a great lineup of speakers, including Montserrat Padilla of Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network and Colleen Echo Hawk, right. executive director of the Chief Seattle Club. And then uh, there's going to be the march, and it's going to terminate at Seattle Center, where you have a number of panels uh, taking place. That's so, right. Yeah, so tell yeah. us a little bit about some of the panels and what they're going to cover. Yeah, so um, well, one of the panels is... Um, focusing on women of color who run for office. These are women who are in office now or have run in the past. Um, and we think that they have a very particular um, perspective to share on what it's like to um, to be in positions of power and also to run and the kind of challenges that they face. And I think the real thing that we can all take away from that is that, um, yes, women face, uh, you know, face a lot of challenges to their credibility, even if they're incredibly uh, knowledgeable, uh, accredited, and all of this sorts of things. But then if you if you add on top of that being a woman of color or a black woman, indigenous woman, a brown woman of some kind, you're going to face extra things where people just don't believe that you're credible. Um, but I think what's really interesting is that we'll all learn how to be in solidarity with them and how to question those kinds of narratives that are very dominant in our society. And then also, um, and also just hear the kind of perspectives that you get. You know, I think what we all believe is like, it's not just about having that 
representation in government, which of course we need, but there's a very specific reason that we need um, we need a broad representation in our government is because we have huge challenges to face and we need the innovation that comes from multiple perspectives. That's why we can't just have white people there. That's why we can't just have white men there anymore. Absolutely right. And uh, and I would just say, I mean, I think we're, we're moving toward a place where we're looking for government that is that, that resembles the people that it represents, right? Yes. So that's one panel we're really excited about. There's also a panel um, focusing on the voices of refugees and immigrant women who are, um, who are, uh, you know, facing some of the most horrible conditions right now under this government conditions and rhetoric. So we're talking about women from, um, from the Somali uh, community who are facing an end to the temporary protected status. We're talking about women who are facing uh, an end to the DREAM Act DACA recipients. We're talking about women from the Vietnamese community. Um, we're talking, you know, we're talking about Vietnamese refugees from the Vietnam War who are now being sent back to Vietnam. I mean, it's just ridiculous the things that are happening to the immigrant community and the kind of rhetoric that's ha- coming out of the White House and that's coming out of, um, you know, everyday people's mouths because because this um, this is kind of seen as the new norm that we attack immigrants. And it's, it's really unfortunate. So we're really trying to highlight their voices. Um, there's also a trans panel, a trans awareness panel. So this is great for people who want to come out and just understand what it means to be trans, what it means to be gender nonconforming, and how to um, be in relationship with those communities and how to support them. And um, and also be supported by them because of course we're stronger together, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. There's also an Indigenous Women Healing Circle that's going to be so much fun and beautiful. Please bring your drums to that. That's going to be at Cornish Playhouse. And there's a youth activism panel led by Kids for Peace. There's a disability justice panel that's focused on um, disabled folks who are also um, Black and Brown and like their particular experiences of of dealing with healthcare in this country. Well, so this is really the focus here is on listening and learning, which I think is fantastic. And that carries into Sunday the 21st. And that's going to be a day of action. This is something that was put on last year and was a great success. Uh, These events are focused on community building. And they're going to be at nine locations, which are referring to as hubs throughout the city. And there's even one in down in Tacoma. Um, Tell us where some of the major hubs are. And then just briefly tell us what people can find at some of them. Well, yes, we have so many hubs this year. We have nine hubs again. Um, we had nine hubs last year too. Mm. And um, so I'm just going to go through them. So we have the Riveter um, on Capitol Hill. We have Casa Latina, which is sort of in Little Saigon, edge of the Central District. Uh, we have Plymouth Church, which is downtown. Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma is hosting uh, the Northwest Detention Resistance is hosting a teach-in about um, about the detention center and the history of sort of immigration violence, I will call it, in this country. And they're going to specifically focus on stories from the caravan because there are women who are being held there that were part of the migrant caravan yeah. right now. Um, we also have City Neighborhood Association. Um, we have Soul Dust, which is a new one we've just added. And we also have uh, a couple of youth-focused ones, one at Langston Hughes and one at Seattle University. And there's just a ton of stuff going on at all of these. And I would just advise people to go to the website to check out what yeah. is happening. And I will provide that information at indivisiblepodcast.org. Um, one thing that I will mention is that you are partnering partnering with the nonprofit Food Lifeline and also Seattle Indivisible mm-hmm. to collect food and sundry items. So should people just bring these items to the events? Yes. Um, so we aren't collecting them at all the hubs, but we are collecting them at five of them, Casa Latina, Nor- um, Finney Neighborhood Association, Plymouth, and the Riveter. So you can, um, and Youngstown in West Seattle. Great. Okay. So people can yeah. just bring the, the items there for collection. And then just I'll- bring them, Yeah. And if you go to our website, you can see what items they're really looking for, but I think they aren't super picky, you know, just non, uh, non-perishables. All right, perfect. And then on Monday, uh, Seattle Women Marching Forward has chosen to partner with the Martin Luther King Organizing Coalition uh, for a day of events that are, that's happening then. Talk about why you chose to partner with them. Yeah, I mean, the, the MLK Day celebrations have been happening in Seattle for 37 years. And so re- early on, we realized that our um, anniversary also coincided with, um, with Martin Luther King Day. And so um, luckily, we were able to get in contact with the Martin Luther King, the Seattle MLK Junior uh, Organizing Coalition. And we've been, we've been sharing resources, um, attending each other's meetings, part of each other's teams. Um, both the program teams are, are sort of linked up and sharing things like 
design um, design help and, and writing help. And also our programs will be uh, printed together, and that's coming out today in real change. Oh, great. So look for that around the region. Okay, cool. Uh, the event will be at Garfield High School, and there's, it's going to start with a career fair, and then there's just going to be a ton of workshops on offer, including how to effectively advance racial equity with allied elected officials, uh, how to do a, effectively do bystander intervention. There's even going to be a class on radio interviewing with radioactive youth media. Uh, so I think the tough right. thing will be deciding which workshop to attend. Uh, it's just an extraordinary lineup of uh, yeah. of panels and, and just some, some incredible work learning on offer there. And once again, that'll be available on the website for people to check out. Um, So before I let you go, I do want to give you the opportunity to address something that has gotten national attention. Uh, Seattle Women Marching Forward is the Seattle chapter of the Women's March, and the National Women's March Organization has recently uh, grappled with accusations of anti-Semitism. Can you talk about how the Seattle Women Marching Forward event has differentiated itself here? Yeah, I mean, we are the local chapter of the Women's March. I will say that we are not legally or fiscally really connected to them, but we are part of the movement. And we acknowledge that um, that they're they're dealing with some hardships and they haven't come out. They hadn't come out very strong against anti-Semitism or as strongly as some would have liked. And we understand that that that's um, very dangerous, especially right now with what um, what the Jewish community is facing. Um like I said, we're not connected to them legally or fiscally, but we know that we all have learning to do. And we know that anti-Semitism is a problem in this country, and um, and we're committed to um, to understanding and working on it. I'll also say that our group has has included um, Jewish um, leaders in our in our organizing collective since the very beginning, and we've all grappled with this and all talked about it uh, extensively, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and and I'll just say that we're we're also you know we're um, responsible to our local community here, and we will continue to work with the Jewish community, with leaders in the Jewish community, and to organize with them as we have been doing for the last three years. Well, as you mentioned, you're not connected fiscally, which means that you probably have, as a result, uh, some greater uh, funding needs than you ordinarily would have. And I know that you are uh, you're asking for for help in that department. So talk about some of those needs and some of the ways that people can donate. Sure. Yeah. You know, when you put on a march, it's it's incredibly expensive. Um, last year. We didn't host the march, um, but this year we are again. And, and last year our funding needs were a lot lower because we were just renting spaces and and helping to um, to underwrite the costs of speakers and things like that. This year, things like we have to pay for things like barricades because you need them to get a permit, and we need porta potties. You need them to get a permit, insurance, all of that kind of thing. And then if you're having a rally, you have to have sound so that people can hear you, and that's incredibly expensive. And then things like um, ASL interpreters and cart services, which is incredibly expensive. Um, and so, you know, but but really um, make sure that the event is accessible. Um, and then we're also um, fundraising to to support an honoraria for all of the teacher, teachers and um, and speakers. So those are the kinds of things that we're raising money for. And we have raised our minimum now, and we're just trying to to pay for um, a little bit better sound and um, and things like the honoraria and ASL interpreters. Yeah, well, you're getting right down to it, so that's it's good to know that you have uh, met uh, some of the funding needs there. But if people we would have, like, yeah. good, if people would like to donate for some of the the last minute upgrades, where can they go? Sure, the best way to donate right now is to donate through texting, um, and you text four four three two one. That's the number to text, and what you text to it is the name, the word Seattle. So text Seattle to 44321, and you can donate that way. Excellent. I will have that information also available on the website. Well, Liberty Harrington, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for all the incredible work that you're doing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and, and we hope to see you on Saturday and Sunday and Monday. <laughs> the whole weekend. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. And finally, we're joined by our friend Stephen Wilhelm, Indivisible Washington's 8th Research Team Leader, to talk about this week's calls to action. Hey, Stephen. Hey, good morning. How are you, Stephen? Good, man. So uh, first, let's talk about what's happening with the government shutdown. So we are now in the longest shutdown in history. Uh, you know, everything with Trump has to be the biggest. So uh, yeah. here we are. Um, Congratulations to him. Yeah, exactly. And to us. 
Yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what we're hearing right now is that there is a coordinated effort to turn out calls in support of the wall to members of Congress. So obviously we need to do something in response. So let's talk about that. Uh, first, talk about the push to our senators. Are we uh, continuing to ask them to withhold consent? Yeah, you bet. Um, fundamentally, what we're asking uh, our senators to do is not to conduct any business um, unless it is to uh, reopen the government. Now, you know, one, one thing folks might want to think about a little bit, I do know that there's um, some a bill going through the House this week, which is H.J. Res. 2, um, which is a resolution of disapproval against the president's plan to to reduce the sanctions against Oleg Deripaska's businesses. You know, that's Paul Manafort's buddy. So um, I, I know that that's something that uh, Chuck Schumer is pushing. So I think that might be an okay exception to the general rule that we don't want the Senate doing any business other than reopening the government. But but absolutely, as a as a basic rule, and, and if folks don't think they even should be taking up that resolution of disapproval, then fine. Continue to encourage your senators, call your senators, and encourage them not to do anything other than uh, to take up funding that uh, opens the government but does not pay for the wall. And I actually will just tell you, I had a hard time getting through to both senators this morning when I called. So uh, there is a great deal of traffic, and uh, I have kind of a sinking feeling that a lot of that traffic is actually coming from people who are part of that paid, coordinated effort in favor of the wall. Um, Indivisible is also asking people to fill out an online form after they get through to their senators, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. If you um, uh, click on a link that's available on the on the Indivisible website, um, you can you can let the senators know how that's going. And in fact, I um, I, I did that this morning. I, I filled it out and let them know that um, you know I was able to get through to Senator Cantwell's office, but uh, wasn't able to get through to uh, Senator Mur- Senator Murray's office and, and had to leave voicemail. In fact, I had the same experience you did, Stefan. It took me. Uh, I was a little bored this morning, so it took me nine tries to get into Senator Murray's office, and they, I did finally get a live staffer. And in fact, the staffer I talked to was unaware um, that Numbers USA, which is an anti-immigrant uh, nativist organization, was was pushing to um, get phone calls to to senators. And the staffer reported that they were getting a lot of pro wall calls this morning. So she certainly encouraged us to let. Um, you know, people know that are opposed to the wall that, that they really need to make those phone calls to um, to counterbalance those um, those paid astroturf calls. Yeah. Well, OK, so there we go. So that that uh, if if you listen no further, gang, that is the one thing to, to make sure that you do this week. Um, but then let's also talk about the message to our members of Congress. Um, so this is a little bit different of an ask because the dynamics are different, of course, in, in the Democratic controlled house. So talk about that. Uh, sure thing. Um, although we, we certainly are looking for them to essentially, you know, continue um, to do what they're doing. So what the House is trying to do is is every week or virtually every day, they are trying to pass another bill to reopen the government. Today, um, it's a bill, H.R. Uh, 268, which is <laughs> confusingly titled uh, Supplemental Appropriations Act. So I don't know myself everything that's in there, but I know – oh, there, there's some um, – Funding for a disaster relief, I think, is the big focus of that particular bill. So yet again, another opportunity for the House to send a bill to the Senate, and hopefully, eventually, the calculus for Mitch McConnell will change, and he will decide to start taking up some of these bills that the House is passing. But um, we definitely want to tell our uh, members of Congress, uh, at least the ones that are voting for these bills, thank you for continuing to try and reopen the government, and um, you, you know, please keep doing that. Yeah. And I think you're right on the money there. Putting the pressure on Mitch McConnell is is really the important thing to do right now, because as we discussed last week, um, he's the one who really could end this if uh, if he chose to. And if there's sufficient pressure, uh, perhaps he will. Um, so next, let's talk about people in uh, Congresswoman Schreier's district. They are looking for her to fulfill one of her commitments during the campaign to voters, which is to hold regular town halls. So uh, talk about the ask there. Uh, sure thing. So uh, it, uh, kind of related to the topic we just got through discussing, it turns out that there were – the House roughly has a schedule of one what they call a district work period every month, and the district work period for January, uh, January 21st to 25th, has already been canceled due to the government.
shut down. So um, even though in- Invisible had a kind of a big push on for uh, folks to take action during the January recess, I suspect that will refocus on the February district work period, which is now um, 18 to 22 February. Please, I hope that we're the government's back in operation. Yeah, no that. kidding. And, and so, um, just as you were saying, you know, our the previous eighth district congressman was not real good about holding town halls. I'm, I'm sure the current congresswoman will be much different. Um, but she's got a lot of irons in the fire, and it would certainly be good for her constituents to let her know that they're really interested in hearing from her, especially about what she's uh, doing to get the government reopened. And to anyway, please, please call her office and encourage her. Uh, to schedule a town hall during one of the upcoming uh, district work periods, uh, February, would be great. All right, good. And in case people do not have her number, people who live in the 8th District, I will provide that on the website in the show notes as well. And then, so finally, since the legislative session is officially underway in Olympia, and we have expanded majorities for the Democrats in both chambers, we really have the opportunity to get some great stuff passed this year. And uh, we have a specific ask for a bill that's coming up in the state Senate uh, right now. So tell us about that. You bet. I'm really excited that we're starting to be able to, um, you know, expand our um, calls to take action into things that will um, help block Trump's agenda in Washington state. Trump-proof Washington is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yes, sir. Exactly right. So what we're asking uh, folks to do is to call their Washington senator about uh, Senate Bill 5116, which is called um, Supporting Washington's Clean Energy Economy. Uh, in fact, there is a hearing scheduled tomorrow in the Senate Committee on uh, Environment, Energy, and Technology. And what we'd really like to ask your uh, listeners to do um, is to uh, go to the website where they can uh, comment on bills and, and specifically leave a comment for their senator on this particular bill and ask the senator um, – not to let the bill be watered down and specifically to defend the bill's provisions um, to have no coal-generated electricity in Washington um, by 2025 and also to um, support the strong benchmarks that are going to require by 2030 that no more than 20 percent of our electricity comes from fossil fuels. And that will prevent utilities from replacing coal with fracked uh, natural gas and put us on a path to 100% clean energy by 2045. So really important bill. Well, that's that's fantastic. And actually, as I uh, spoke with uh, Jiggy Othilingham, uh in the first segment on this show, because Washington is a so-called uh, democratic trifecta state, uh, we really do have the opportunity to do some great work here, which will have a ripple effect throughout the country. Uh, it can be a proving ground for uh, legislation that can work in other states and even possibly and ideally at the federal level. So that's really what we're about here. And so we're hoping, Stephen, that you will keep us posted on uh, great stuff that is coming before the both the, the state house and the state Senate, uh, things that we can advocate for in that way. That'd be my pleasure. All right, great. Well, thank you as always for everything that you do. Thanks for all your great information, and we will talk to you next week. I enjoyed it. Talk to you next week, Stefan. And that'll do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, and there's going to be a ton of them, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Jiggy Othi Lingham, Liberty Harrington, and, of course, thanks to Stephen Wilhelm. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.